Welcome in to the At The Yard Podcast. Today's guest is Cal State Northridge head coach Dave Serrano, who shares his thoughts on the legendary coaches he's had an opportunity to play for and coach with, his coaching career that has led to six trips to Omaha, and his most recent stop at Cal State Northridge. All that and much more on episode 51 of the At The Yard Podcast. Welcome back to the At The Yard Podcast. Super excited about today's guest, uh, head coach of Cal State Northridge, Dave Serrano, joins me. Coach, really appreciate you making some time. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, class, and I appreciate you having me on. I've, I've uh, listened to, to your other podcast. You've done a wonderful job of promoting a lot of great assistant coaches in Southern California, and I appreciate everything you do for, for baseball in the area. Awesome. I really thank you for saying that. First time in, gosh, I got to assume the better part of your life that you're not on a baseball field this, this time of year. I mean, what's what's that been like for you? It's, it's been really different, Les. And, and, and you know, I'll say this. I, I'm not going to sit here and feel sorry for myself. I know it, this is in, this pandemic has impacted a lot of people a lot worse than, than us baseball coaches being off the field or players not being able to be on a field. Um, my hope is, is that everyone's continuing to stay in safe and that, that we can find closure to this sooner than later, that we can get back to some kind of, uh, new normal now. And, and, but it has been different. It's actually been, um, you know, it was devastating when we got the word in, on, in March, the middle of March that our season was going to be ended and, and school was going to shut down. Uh, what I ended up doing is I checked in with my administration and, and, uh, and I still own a home out in Knoxville and that's where my boys still live. So I ended up coming out here and I'm, I've been in Knoxville doing everything virtually uh, from here just because uh, Northridge is shut down. There's no recruiting right now. And as soon as the, as the gates open up again, so to speak, I'll get on a plane and I'll be back in Southern California. Yeah, that's awesome. So you spend some time with the family there uh, during the springs. That, that's one of the bright sides to this all, right? I mean, it's not often that you get to spend as much time with them during the spring season. But, but Coach, I, I want to go back to your playing days at, at Cerrito College. You, you played at Cerritos High. You went to Cerritos College. Had a, just a magnificent season uh, there your second year, going 12-1. and one. And, you know, then you later played for Augie Garrido at, at Cal State Fullerton, obviously a legend. Sh- share with us a little bit, if you don't mind, just kind of lessons learned from Augie and, and what that experience was like as a whole for you. Well, uh, to be on, quite honest, uh, you said it perfectly. Coach Garrido was a legend. And uh, – I was actually a little intimidated by him and like probably other players just because of his persona and the way he carried himself. And, and, uh, I think the thing that I carried on from Augie, uh, and all his success was his resiliency to be successful and his toughness. Augie was a tough guy in a good way. And, uh, he, uh, found ways to, to, to get things done. Uh, you know, everyone looks at Cal state forwards and they should because of the, the history that it's had, but, uh, when I played there, it was no no more glamorous than a than a decent high school field. You know, chain link fence all the way around, just normal bleacher seats in the stands. And he had already won two national championships in that kind of arena. And everyone looks to Cal State Fullerton and the beautiful facility they have now, a Goodwin Field. But Coach Garrido won two national championships before that facility was even built. So he was a, a guy that that 
kind of broke ground on. You didn't have to have the big, huge stadium like a lot of the Power Five conference um, programs have to be successful. And and that's kind of what the mentality that I've carried to Northridge is that that we don't have to have the glamorous stadium to be good on the baseball field. That can't be an excuse why we can't develop players and develop teams to be championship caliber uh, type of people and programs. Yeah, and you've had some just awesome experiences coaching for and playing for just some some of the the greatest in, in the game, uh, coaching with, I should say, excuse me. Uh, you know, you spent some time at Cerritos College uh, with George Horton. Uh, you spent a year as the head coach there uh, before moving on to uh, Tennessee, right, uh, as the pitching yes. coach uh, un- under another legendary coach and Rod Delmonico uh, out there. What what prompted that move for a, a guy from Cerritos, California, to you know, hop on a plane to end up at, in Knoxville? Was it the opportunity to go to a Division One school, or was there something behind that? Well, it, there's actually a great story behind that. I was at Cerritos College. I, coach Horton gave me and Bill Moziello the opportunity to be assistant coaches. And, and I say Coach Horton because he was a big part of my career. He was my mentor. He was my coach. He's been a big part of that has led me into coaching. But Coach Garrido had a lot to play with the decisions that I made throughout my career because of decisions he was making. And it was in 1988, I believe, a long time ago, uh, (laughs) Coach Garrido left Cal State Fullerton to go to the University of Illinois. And at the time, uh, the assistant coach at Cerritos under Coach Horton was Jody Robinson, who was my assistant when I played there in 85. And so he moves on with Coach Garrido at Illinois. And um, Bill Mozilla and myself were running back then the Norwalk Birds Connie Mack team. And we were young. We were 23 years old at the time, 23 going on 24. And Coach Horton gave us an opportunity of a lifetime. Uh, he could have went out and probably hired anyone because Cerritos College was at, the, it was at the pinnacle at that time. It was winning state championships. It was winning at a high level. And he gave me and Bill Moziello the opportunity to be an assistant, be assistant coaches under him. And, you know, this is a good story for the young coaches that are trying to get their career off the ground. It might have looked great that I was the assistant coach at Shreels College at that age, but in reality, I was the groundskeeper for the baseball field. And if you looked at the school directory, I was listed under the grounds department. I was getting paid. My money was being filtered through the grounds department. I was getting a stipend to be a coach too, but I mowed the field. I I, uh, drugged the field. I edged the field. I fertilized the field. I changed the sprinklers on the field. And every day, that was my job. And I got to be the assistant coach in the afternoon when we practiced. When we practiced. So I did that for seven or eight years. Then Coach Horton ended up leaving to go to Fullerton with Coach Garrido and uh, to be his associate head coach when Coach Garrido came back. So it allowed me to be the assistant coach. I didn't have a master's degree, so I couldn't be the long-term um, head coach. It allowed me to be the head coach. So I, I didn't have a master's, so I couldn't be the long-term head coach. So I worked for Coach Gaylord. But what got the connection to Tennessee was when Larry Simcox, who was a recruiting coordinator back then, used to come out to Southern California. And Bill Moziello uh, just happened to be the assistant there, too. Bill moved on to Ole Miss, and it created an opening there. And Larry went back and realized of all the times he'd come out to Southern California recruit and how honest I was about our players, about other players in Southern California at other junior colleges that I had seen on guys that maybe he should recruit and maybe not recruit. And I was always pretty to the point, pretty honest with him about uh, that coach is overselling him a little bit. He's not quite the player. 
This guy didn't have a good year, but he's a good player. And they had success with guys from out in Southern California. So when the opening came, you know, obviously Bill was there prior to. So his my name was in their program a little bit. But they remembered the honesty of my evaluations of players. And then obviously my connection to Southern California. At the time, Tennessee was pulling a lot of guys out of Southern California. So it was actually a, a perfect fit um, because they kind of knew me from the kind of character I had and the kind of evaluation I had on people and players. And uh, it ended up being a great fit. And that's what kind of those two years there were fabulous years. I, I, I want to say that we went to the College World Series for the first time in school history in many, many years in 1995. We only had guys by the name of Todd Helton and R.A. Dickey. So that didn't hurt <laughs> us at all. <laughs> but um, and then in 96, we actually probably had a better team. We didn't have Helton. He had signed with the Rockies. We actually had a better team physically. We weren't a better team, if that makes sense. But Absolutely. I was there two great years. I think we won 93 games in those two years. Uh, went to the postseason. The one year we went to Omaha. Then Coach Horton, Coach Greedo left again Fullerton. He leaves to go to Texas. And Coach Horton becomes the head coach at Cal State Fullerton. He placed a call to me. Uh, we had just had our, I had just had my first son, Kyle. And um, we decided, I decided to come home to Southern California to be around the family. And then it was Cal State Fullerton is where I played and, and it was with Coach Horton. So I ended up leaving Tennessee, which was a hard decision to do to come back and be uh, the assistant with Coach Horton. And um, that was in 1997, I believe. 97, 97. Yeah. And, yeah. And I mean, I just, this is when, I mean, you're, in my opinion, the way I look at it, I mean, your coaching career is obviously well established prior to that, but I mean, Gosh, it just takes off at this point, right? I mean, 97 to 04 at Cal State Fullerton, the recruiting coordinator, the pitching coach, four trips to Omaha, six conference titles. I mean, with all of that success, the, I mean, share with us some of your just memories of maybe memorable seasons, memorable games, players, certainly. I mean, tons of players came through there. But more importantly, being back home with, you know, who you called, who you described as your mentor and George Horton working for him prior to getting your first head coaching opportunity a few years later at UC Irvine, which we'll get into. Well, you know, let me go a little bit back because I, I, this is mistakenly forgotten by me. Uh, you asked how I went to Tennessee. I, I had a tough decision because I, at the time at my age, being at a junior college, working the, the grounds department and getting my stipend for coaching at my age back in, in those days, I was making decent money, and um, now it was a lot of hard work, but it was decent money. And I called Coach Horton because the opportunity at the time at Tennessee was the restricted earnings position, which for a lot of people they don't understand. Back then, that was kind of like the volunteer position. It was a tier up, but you could only max out at 16000 a year. I was making more than that at, at Cerritos College, and I reached out to Coach Horton for advice, and I said, I've got this opportunity but I'm going to be going down and pay. And his exact comment was, Dave, one day I'm going to be a head coach and I'm going to want you on my staff. And it'll be a lot easier to bring you on to my staff if you have division one recruiting experience. And when I heard that, that made my decision easy. I was, I had, I was extremely happy at Cerritos. It was close to home. It's where I played, but I needed to go across the country 3000 miles to start my journey as a head coach. And that, that's what got it, it going. But you're right. I, when I look back over my career, I'm, I'm more proud of the people that I've come in contact with less. Uh, and I'm not just talking about the guys that have had the opportunity to be first rounders, the guys that have played professional baseball. 
but just the, the, the young men and the families that I've come in contact through recruiting or being their head coach, uh, just special people and having, hopefully having positive impacts on them, even if it wasn't by the scoreboard or the success of our teams, just positive impacts of pushing them on into life, into being successful in whatever they're going to be. You know, we all know they're going to one day be a father. They're going to be a husband one day. They're going to have a career outside of baseball. So just allowing them with the discipline that we're in our programs, whether I was the assistant or the head coach, um, allowing them to grow into the men that they are. But the other thing is the special people that I've had around me. Uh, I, I feel very honored of some of the success that I've that I've had, but it's been shared along the whole journey with great people, great, great coaches that are now making their strides in the college baseball and some of them in the professional baseball, that it was never about me. It was about the people that I surrounded myself each and every stop that I was at. You know, I'm glad you brought that up because you, you sent me a nice note after having a recent podcast with Tony Asaro and, you know, really prompted me asking you to come on this podcast. And, and I mean, as a, as a head coach, as a, a lifelong baseball man, you know, coaching young men and you see that development, you see guys that go on to be doctors, lawyers, you know, whatever it is they might become. Is it a little more special for you when you see former players go on into the coaching profession, uh, you know, where you're able to stay connected with them a little more easily. You see them out recruiting, you see them out at a game, you know, eventually, you know, I know one of your former players and Ben Orloff is now a, a head coach in your conference. I mean, what, what is that feeling like for you? Well, first, the first thing that comes to my mind, Les, is it makes me feel, feel old because <laughs> these, these are young men that I coach that are now becoming successful leaders of programs. But when I look around and I see the Benny Orloffs, the Danny Bybonas, the Tony Asaros, the Greg Wallaces, guys that were that 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 I coached, that I was the coach of their team, of them, their success. But you could kind of see it. I could kind of see it when I was their coach, to be honest with you, because that's the kind of what that's what they were on the field. They were leaders on the field, and the way they went about their work every day led them into being of the success that they're sharing and. You know, I have to compete against those guys, but it's almost like competing against your brother or your son sometimes, to be honest with you, because you have such passion and love for them, but you want them to do well and you want yourself to do well, too. But I, I'm very proud of those guys. I'm proud of all my former players. But you said it perfectly. Those are the guys that I remain the closest with because I get to see them the most because they're in the same industry as me. So when we're out on the recruiting trail or we're competing on the field, I get to share time with them. And there's there's a longer list of just those guys, but sure. it makes me proud. Just like I know it made Coach Horton proud of the guys he has out there. I'm sure it made Coach Garrido proud. And many of the coaches that I worked under or I played for, it's just a special feeling. It's almost like your son being successful in the industry that you're in. And that's kind of how I look at, at these young men when they come through is, is I kind of take a father figure to them. They have their own fathers, but we get them at such a fragile time of their life when they're 18 to 22 years old. And hopefully more times than not, we're, we're leading them right down the right path to success in whatever they do in their life. And coach, as, as a, as a head coach, which you got your first opportunity there at Irvine in 05 and you guys make it to Omaha in 07, then you come home, so to speak to Cal state Fullerton in 08 through 2011, you guys, another Omaha trip, three straight supers. I mean, that's, it's just, it's so much success. 
what what are the things that I mean you were able to kind of pull from the former coaches that you worked for that you played for that allowed you to kind of hit the ground running as a head coach and have so much success you know when your first couple of stops there at both Irvine and and Cal State Fullerton. Well, I'll start with the I'll start with the Irvine stop. Um, you know, I, I I followed Coach Savage who had left to to go to UCLA, and Coach Savage had been there when the program was was started back up, and I felt. I took over a place, uh, a very special place. Uh, UC Irvine was a special place to go to work to every day. And I felt that I was very fortunate to follow such a great coach in him. And he had started to build that thing. And then we, and then I, he left UCLA, I take it over. And it just, uh, it took some time. And when I say time, that's kind of ridiculous because it took us three years, <laughs> but I could see it. I could see it start to build and it took, players like guys I just mentioned in, in Asaro and Bibona and and uh, and Benny Orloff. It took special people. And I want to give full credit to that to Sergio Brown and Greg Bergeron, who were my assistants at the time, is they kind of built this thing. And, you know, uh, Benny Orloff, this is I think this is a fabulous story. Benny Orloff was the first player we signed in the summer of 2004 the first player at UC Irvine. And I, I, I hope I'm not going to embarrass. He was a recruited walk-on. He was going to get some financial aid. And, and his father, Mike, reminds me of this all the time, and it makes me so proud. We were sitting in our old cubicle at Irvine before we got the offices out at the field. And I looked at Benny, and I said, Benny, this was a little arrogant on my part. Here's a coach that just came off a national championship as an assistant at Cal State Fullerton in 04. This was like two months later in August. And I looked at Benny and I said, Benny, you're going to be part of one of my first my first team that I've ever helped as the head coach get to Omaha. And sure enough, two years later, we were standing in Omaha. And uh, but it took special people like that. And when I go back through my career, there's been a lot of special teams and a lot of people probably think the 04 National Championship, which it is that I'll never forget that last out landing in Bobby Andrews glove in right field. And we had beaten Texas to win the national championship. But the 07 journey, when we go through Round Rock, Texas, we go through Wichita, Kansas, and we end up in Omaha, is a story that that brings tears to my eyes every time I think about it. Because that team, not maybe, and I don't think it was because I was a head coach of that team. It was just the way that team was put together, the special people, not just on the field, the connection we had with the parents and the families of them all being on board, what we were trying to build and trying to do there. It made that seven to 10 day trip to Omaha, even though we ended up finishing in third, I think that year or fourth, whatever it ended up being, it was something that I'll never forget throughout my career. Yeah. And, and you get named the national coach of the year from baseball America there. And, and then home calls, right? I mean, Cal State Fullerton, Coach Horton moves on. They have an opening and the opportunity is presented to you. You clearly accept that. Uh, that transition had to be a difficult one for you. I mean, I can hear, kind of hear the emotion in your voice talking about that Irvine team that made it to Omaha in 07. That had to be a, a little bit of a difficult transition for you, leaving those guys or you know some of those guys uh, and, and but coming home right i mean when home calls it's hard to say no yeah you're right um and i'm not ashamed to say i i was crying like a baby when i had to tell those guys i was leaving um it was a tough deal um those guys were were near and dear to my heart and um 
I'll never go back and say if things could be different, but I have thought through that because, and here's why I say that uh, Cal State Fullerton is a special place. Cal State Fullerton had people before me by the names of Augie Garrido and George Horton. And I'll even throw in Larry Cochelle who was in there in between those guys. And, so those guys had already put the flag up of what Fullerton was and what Fullerton continues to be, okay? Irvine was what I felt was starting to become my own place, something that we did, something that no one else had ever done. We had got that that program to Omaha, of something that probably a lot of people 15 years ago would have never thought could have happened at a place like that. Now, they've gone numerous times after that, but that was something I was building on my own with my staff and the players we had assembled, so when I look back, that's the one thing, honestly, that I could say that if I had to do it again, I don't know if I do the same thing. Fullerton is a special place, a very special place for many special players and people. But it, it was I felt ownership at Irvine where I didn't feel as much ownership at Fullerton. So it didn't make it as gratifying in the end, if that makes sense to you. Yeah, it makes, makes total sense. And uh, I mean, yeah, make, makes clear sense. Uh, so going from, you know, after 2011 season, you, you head back to Tennessee. You're named the head coach for the volunteers there. Uh, I mean, one of the highlights there had to be coaching your son. You mentioned him earlier, uh, you know, coming out of out of high school was pretty highly thought of. Uh, and, you know, he ends up coming to Tennessee, works himself into a 10th round pick in 2017. That experience, I mean, a lot of guys, when they, when a lot from the son's perspective, it's usually, man, my dad grinded me. He was, you know, harder on me than anybody or, you know, and then from the player's perspective, it's generally, well, he's the easiest on the son, you know, but from a, from a father's perspective, you know, I'm a father as well. And I mean, what was that experience like for you to have your son in in the program there with you? There was two sides of the spectrum on that, Les. Um, It was great. Because as, as you know, being, a base, being in the baseball world, when you have kids, you miss a lot of their stuff. Um, and I have three boys, and I'm not proud to say I, I've missed a lot of their events because I'm raising other kids, my players. And I'm at their games every day, but I can't be at my own um, son's games. So from that standpoint, to see him and his growth in his college years was fabulous. If I think if we both had to do it again, though, we probably wouldn't have done that because it was very difficult on a relationship because I took the extreme of what you said, the first extreme, and that I was harder on him than probably most guys. Now, in some retrospect, at times he probably deserved it. But I was so cautious of what you said. I didn't want any player in my program to think I was giving any favoritism to my own son. I was almost trying to prove to them that I was going to be harder on him. And in the end, it made it very difficult on us. And, that, and let's be honest, we weren't having success at Tennessee. So the, the gorilla was over my shoulder each and every day. I had come there to take that program to another level like it had been at one point, And we were struggling. And, um, and so it made it very difficult on a relationship, which – I think we both agreed when his time was up and my time was up at Tennessee, we have a close relationship and it, it got close again when that ended. But, but like I said, there was two sides of it. Cause I was, it was great to see his growth in during those years, but it was hard also because of the father son relationship. Yeah. I can, I can only imagine after, so after Tennessee, you spent a year at West Virginia, then in 2019, 
you're named the head coach at Cal State Northridge. And, you know, it's a program that, in, in my opinion, uh, you know, is on the rise. And, and, and especially under you, you guys got off to a really good start, 10-5, and 7-0 to start the season. I found somewhere I believe that's the best start since 1993. Uh, seem, things seem to click for you guys kind of right out of the gate here. Uh, at, at Northridge and, and what what attracted you to that position was it the opportunity to be back home in Southern California uh, to be a head coach I mean I'm sure it's a, a number of those factors uh, but what what was the the thing that put Cal State Northridge over the top for you and said yeah I want this job it's that's an easy answer for me it was the challenge it was the challenge it was the it was the opportunity to go back to a big west school where I where most of my success has come from it was the opportunity to come back to Southern California, but most of all, it was the challenge. I've always seen a place like Northridge, even when I competed against them, where we're located in the Valley with all the players that surround us, just like many other schools in the Big West, a chance to to build something there that hasn't been done in a while. I mean, the Big West hasn't been won by Northridge since 2002. Um, there's been a lot of good players that have come through there, but there just hasn't been a consistency. And um, I needed the I needed to know that the administration was going to be behind me 100 percent, that we were going to be looked upon in the Big West in the top three and in, in every category when it comes to budget and everything. So I needed to know that everything was in place for us to, to have a chance to be successful. Then my next mission was to put the best people around me. And like I, I keep going back to because it's so important. A head coach is only as good as his staff and his players. I mean, we get sometimes too much notoriety and sometimes we get too much blame. But uh, the fact is, you've got to have good people around you. And my first mission was to go out and attract people like Neil Walton and Eddie Cornejo, who have had a lot of success here in Southern California, who had, have had ties to recruits here in Southern California. And that was the best way for us to get rolling right away. And in a short period of time, they were. I was hired on June 24th last year. They were hired, I believe, on July 6th. We we gathered. They gathered up 15 to 17 recruits that we had on campus, new recruits. Plus the fact I don't want it to go um, unknown. We inherited a pretty good uh, group of players, especially position players. We older. We inherited an older group, which fortunately we get the majority of them back, and we were able to fill in some pieces uh, with their tireless recruiting of two months when we're trying to get to know the team we're inheriting and they're trying to fill the pieces at the same time. So again, any success that, that I've had, any success that we will have at Northridge is a fact of the people that I have around me. And that's always been the story, the story behind me. It's not just been about me. I've been fortunate to have great people to my right and my left that have helped make me look a lot better. You know, and I'm glad you brought Neil and Eddie up there. I mean, two quality recruiters, two reputable recruiters in Southern California and throughout the state. And I mean, let's talk about recruiting for Cal State Northridge. What What is your, your philosophy when it comes to recruiting? I mean, a lot of guys say, yeah, we're just looking for the best player. Well, I mean, it, that's easily, you know, that's easy to identify. But, you know, once you get past the 10 or 12 guys, I mean, are you still in that best player category? But, you know, what 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 kind of specific things are you guys looking for when it comes to recruiting players to Cal State Northridge? Well, there has to be a mutual interest in both sides. And that's where you have to be intelligent. And you can always go after the best player. But you also got to realize that there's other really good programs out there. 
And uh, uh, just speaking honest truth, which I hope uh, you you've understood about me from the get go in this conversation is is that we realize we're not going to get in the mix with some of the big boys in Southern California. They have much more tradition. They have much better facilities. So you got to know your niche of where where you're going to to find players and who is going to be a fit for your program. I'm going to go all the way back to Cal State Fullerton when I was fortunate enough to be the recruiting coordinator at Fullerton and some of the great teams that myself and Rick Vanderhoek and Coach Horton were able to build in our time there. We were never anyone's first choice, believe it or not. And by the look of some of those teams – you would say, boy, they got all the recruits they wanted. That wasn't the, the, the truth. And that used to frustrate Coach Horton a little bit as the head coach, is that I somehow found a way to find a niche of which guys were going to fit the Fullerton mold and that we weren't going to have to fight a lot of the big boys of the Power 5 schools to get them to Fullerton. You know, Because, as you know, places like Northridge, Fullerton, they're looked upon as a commuter school. We used to hear that a lot. And a yeah. state education, which I still don't understand. But... Um, we used to get beat, and it's not easy for me to say, when we were having all that success at Fullerton, we were getting beat by the USC's and the UCLA's and the Arizona's and the Arizona State's and the USD's and the Stanford's and the Cal's. So we had to find the players that were going to fit us, and that's the same mold that I'm that we're trying to bring to Northridge. Is Yes, we want the athletes. That's the first and foremost. And yes, we want the good arms and all that. But we've got to find the ones that are going to be good fits. And I think Eddie and Neil have done a fabulous job of recognizing that. Because I believe this first class that we brought in is a lot of players that in the past may have looked past Northridge. But because of their tenaciousness of recruiting, their personalities, the kind of character that we feel that we want to have for our players and their families, it's attracted kids to us. And I, I believe... They believe us that we are going to build something successful there. You know, I'm glad you you mentioned that because I, I agree, <clears throat> excuse me, 100% with you that some of these kids that you have coming in in that first class in the past may, may have overlooked Cal State Northridge. Additionally, some of the guys you have coming in the next class, uh, you know, might have fit that same mold. You, you mentioned fit a lot, right? And and you're, what is the right fit? I mean, you're, you, you know, you're – Without saying, you know, we need guys that run six twos or, you know, guys that are 95, you know, obviously. Uh, but what is the right fit? I mean, are you are you looking for guys that are you know willing to put down a bunt with two outs and, you know, have have the courage to do that? Or, you know, guys that are, you know, are willing to do things that are you know out of the their their norm or out of their comfort level? I mean, what, what when you say guys that are the right fit, can you elaborate on that a little bit? Well, I'm going to use a term that Coach Cornejo uses a lot uh, with our recruits is that we want guys that want to get better. And I know that might sound ridiculous to say because that's probably people are probably thinking, well, doesn't anyone want to get better? That isn't always necessarily the case. Sometimes people think they're as good as they need to be. We want people always achieving to be better. That's what we're trying to do every day as a coaching staff. We're trying to make Northridge better, not for myself, not for my coaches, but for the program. And, you know, I, I, I believe you've you got to have a little toughness to come to Northridge. you got to have a little grind in you. It, you know, we don't – it's not like you're going to have the – and I'm not putting it down by no means. It is what it is. But we might not have the most glamorous stadium in the Big West. I realize that. We may not have the most glamorous locker room. I realize that. But we have a field, and we have cages, and we have areas for development. And I feel – I believe, and I'm being very biased when I say this, but I believe we have a very, very – uh, 
experienced, well-respected coaching staff that are good people and are going to treat our kids as good people or like good people to develop them into the best baseball players, the best student athletes and the best people we can in their three or four years there. So I don't know if there is the exact mold that we're looking for, but there's got to be as much excitement on their part as there is on our part that we want them to be part of the program as much as they want to be part of our program. And that's something at Northridge I've noticed is we have to sort through a little bit with, uh, are you really interested in this or are you just intrigued because of the, of the interest that someone has in you? And I think Eddie's done a great job of that as our recruiting coordinator of recognizing that. And I truly believe the kids that we've gotten in this first class and the commitments we got in the next class are coming to Northridge for all the right reasons and know all the negativity or the negativity that is there. They know that up front. So when they come in, they just want to be the best student and the best athlete they can. And I'm not putting Northridge down because every school has their landmines that, of the issues they have to deal with. But we are up front with them about that. And they're coming to Northridge for the right reasons. You know, you mentioned there that that fine line, right, of knowing is this kid really interested in us or is he kind of just interested in the attention? I mean, you, you've been through it all. You've seen everything in recruiting, right, from – the days when the JUCOs were heavily recruited, which they still are, uh, but to recruiting to you know a Power Five school, to going to Omaha with recruits that may have you know been under the radar type guys, the state of recruiting today, where you know we're seeing eighth graders committing to Power Five programs, that we're seeing you know kids that haven't even played a high school varsity game are committing to colleges. Do you think that's sustainable for the game long-term? Or, or what is your overall take on that? Well, I, I have a tough time with that, Les, because I just, you know, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you the speech that I tell every recruit and every family that comes into my office is that did, where you decide to go to school, where you decide to play your collegiate career is almost like deciding on a relationship of marriage. And I know that sounds ridiculous to say, but in reality, it is reality because, yes, a commitment to a four-year school is – or to a, a Division One school is, is only a four-year commitment. That's what it is. That's about the lifespan that you spend there, and some only spend three years there because they sign after their junior year. But as we've already talked about, the impact it has on your life, like it has on my life. I am where I'm at today. I've done what I've done today because of the coaches, my mentors, and my teammates that I've had along the way. And so it's impact. It's, it's taken me to this part of my life. And that's why I think kids that are making decisions so early really don't know, because one of the things, you know, coaches can talk to players and their families, coaches could have their families and the kids up on campus if they're able to come on campus of, of age. But a lot of times they don't even meet the players that are going to be their brothers, so to speak, over the next three or four years of their lives. So they're making hasty decisions. It'd be like, and I'm not saying it can't work, but it'd be like going to a girl's house one night, meeting her family, and then you decide to marry her the next day. <laughs> that that could happen. You know that you know that success can happen out of that. But a lot of times there may be more failure to that. So for me, it, it's there's more to to look into making the decision. Now maybe I'm saying that because I'm at a school that we're not going to get into that industry where we're committing kids so far out. But less as we speak right now, I could ask you how much different is your life today than it was a year ago and there's so many things that have happened in that time that have changed your life and that's what worries me about getting those commitments 
so far out is that so many things change. Coaching, coaching staffs change. And no matter what anyone says, you don't really always make your decision based off the school. Some people do. A lot of it is the personalities and the character of the coaching staff that you believe you're going to play for. And if you commit so early, by the time you get there, there may be a different head coach, and there's most likely going to be different assistant coaches because they're trying to move on to higher higher positions in their in their career also. Yeah, that's 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 a very very good point. I want to shift gears a little bit, coach. You talked about the facilities, and you know, you guys may not have the glamorous facility, but you do have an an upgrade going on with the facility. Can you yes. take us through? Can you take us through that? I mean, Matador Field's going to look. Unlike uh, anything I've ever seen at their place before, just looking at the at the renderings, it looks incredible, uh, you know, and, and how big of a role? Well, let's talk about that first. Let's talk about the the upgrade to the facility and what's getting done there at Matador Field. Well, it, we I'm very proud of what, what my administration has done. They they've uh, they were pretty uh, strong in their words of what they told me they wanted to accomplish here. Um, uh, and after bringing me on board. One of the things we had talked about is improving the facilities, improving the playing surface. We know we're not going to have a stadium-type atmosphere there, but it's the playing surface. And, I, and I'm not ashamed to say or, that when I got there, it was not in good shape. It was not in good shape at all. In fact, uh, during the fall, I feel bad for last year's team because we had to endure some things that most Division One teams don't have to endure just by the playing surface. And the, the school backed me. We put in a new playing surface. Uh, we're doing some things to the dugout. Uh, just a lot of different things. We put in some turf behind home plate to really kind of beautify the, 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 the facility for our for the players, for the playing surface, for the development. And I think that's so important. I mean, uh, first impressions are very important and, and curbside appeal are very important. So now when our players walked out, nothing made me prouder that when our players, when the new surface was put down on the field and our players came back after the, the winter break, and it was almost like they were playing on Dodger Angel Stadium. I mean, it really was. To see their faces, to see the true hops on the infield, to see the, the green grass, it just a little little adjustment on that made a, went a long ways with our guys. We, we changed the uniform look to it. Our university allowed us through Under Armour to get a whole new look with our uniforms. And just things like that can change a culture of a consistency, hopefully, of a winning atmosphere by kind of making some changes to some things that have kind of were kind of stale after a while, I guess. You know, I'm glad you brought up that uni, the uniform changes, because I, I just in looking and doing some research for the podcast. I, the one thing that really stood out is how aggressive Cal State Northridge is being with this hashtag unite the valley. Right. I mean, representing the valley. I mean, you are the valley's university. And, and I think that is going to really lend itself for particularly for baseball uh, to really kind of be known a little bit more in the Valley. Like, Hey, you've got a quality division one program right down the street from you. Yes. And it kind of led to one of my thought processes. We honored last year, the 1970 uh, division two national championship team and had a dinner for them, had a weekend for them, honored them at one of our games, one of our fall games. And, um, I got the idea because back in the day, I didn't realize this, but there it wasn't Cal State Northridge back in the day. And I'm drawing a blank. I think it was uh, uh, that, or San Fernando Valley State uh, College. I think that's what it used to be called. Okay. And um, 
So I saw one of their jerseys and it had that written across the top. And so that it wasn't an easy thing to do because we have our own script and all that. And um, we went to our BP top now says Valley State on it. And that went over huge for the, the alumni, especially that group of 1970. That was huge because we made that jersey in honor of them of what their accomplishments were and what we're trying to do at, at Northridge. And it's something that I'm going to continue to do with that jersey because I think it does – Valley State does represent what Northridge is. We are the state university for the Valley. And uh, if I had my way, I'd love the university to be called Valley State, to be honest with you. I don't have my way all the time. <laughs> it's just – it 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 kind of – we're just trying to bring a different look. Like I'm proud to say at Irvine – were the ones that that were that created eaters across the jersey, and you know it was Ann Eaters and UC Irvine, but we're the ones that created eaters in that time when I was there, and from 2005 to 2007, and I'm proud of that. So it's just something, a little catchy phrase that people could. And I I did notice this year when we walked into a stadium and we had our BP tops on our our alternate top, and it said Valley State. It was very eye catching to people that something that popped out of them, that something that they're not used to seeing. It wasn't just the CSUN. It wasn't just the Northridge. It was Valley State, and it represented something different. And that's what we're trying to do here is build something different. You talk about building a program and building something different. I mean, obviously, it starts, with, as you mentioned, numerous times with players. And you've been around a lot of successful players, guys that have gone on to, you know, fantastic big league careers and, and, and other careers that have had wild success. And, you know, I go back, I go to the question of leadership, right? I mean, you've been around so many great players, you know, you probably have taken a little bit of, you know, from all of these players. And so in your program at Cal state Northridge, I mean, how do you guys define leadership? Great question. I uh, don't know if I have the great answer for that, especially, you know, my career has spanned over many years and I'm proud of that. Um, I'm proud that I'm still in college baseball after so many years. You've kind of seen leadership go in a different direction. I think it's harder for kids to be leaders now uh, because leaders aren't sometimes looked upon in in a favorable way. Um, Just like in coaching now, I see in coaching, I love my players. I've loved every player I've ever coached, whether they throw 95 or they throw 75 or they hit home runs or they hit only singles. Um, You love them for who they are. And I think some, but sometimes coaching can come across as being mean or trying to demean. And I don't, that's not how I try to coach. Coaching is trying to make someone better. And uh, sometimes constructive criticism could be taken the wrong way. And I think it's the same thing in leadership. And I think it's harder now for kids to be leaders because they want to be popular on their team. And sometimes a leader, when they're holding players accountable, isn't always the most popular guy. He may be the most valuable guy in the eyes of the coaches, but not always the most popular guy. And that's the thing that's been the hardest to have to deal with. I believe we have leaders. We took over a program that I feel had had leaders. I think the culture of the players was really good. And I'll, I'll, I'll brag a little bit about them. There's a little bit of a difference of a takeover. When I took over at Tennessee and I took over in, in 2011 and I took over at Northridge last year, there was a lot of things that we took over at Tennessee that we had to clean up in the program of just a lot of different things. At Northridge, we didn't have to do that. The culture was in place with the players. They knew right from wrong. They knew they needed to go to class. They knew they needed to be on time. All that stuff was in place. 
we just got to coach. And I believe that's what helped us become a little bit better sooner than people thought. And again, it was a 15 game sample last year. So I don't want to toot our horn too much, but we were able to coach as a coaching staff and there was not many off the field drama stuff that we had to go back and deal with because our players had established such a good culture. So we did have some leadership of guys that uh, one name that comes to my mind is Jason Newman. He'll return for his fifth year this year, a guy that was out the year before with Tommy John surgery. He's kind of like the, the leader of everybody. He keeps guys in line. He's an older guy. And we had guys like that that were, that were valuable to us. So it's as a coach, you would like to just let the leaders take ownership of the things that are going on. Because I'm not one of those coaches that wants to know everything that's going on in the locker room after a game. I don't want to be, know what's going on at the dorms or in their apartments after the game. I'm hoping that the guys are educated enough by us that they could police each other. But it is harder nowadays, Les, for kids to do that because they just they aren't they aren't I don't think they're brought up as much that way. And it's harder as a kid to do that now because they're kind of frowned upon. So I guess the follow up would be how do you balance, you know, kind of that expectation of, hey, there's some leaders on the team. These guys are going to manage themselves with not forcing leadership on guys. Right. Because oftentimes you look to the best player as you know, that guy's got to be the leader of the team. But, you know, I've, I've certainly been on teams, and I'm sure you have, where the best player isn't the leader on the team. And, but it, it's a guy that, hey, every, when that guy talks, everybody listens. So, you know, how do you kind of balance that, you know, that, that line of the expectation is you guys are going to kind of patrol yourselves versus forcing a guy to be a leader? Well, that's a great question, and I, I don't think you can force it. If you try to force leadership, you're not going to have any leadership at all. I believe what we've tried to do and what I've tried to do as a head coach is you start out as you know us as a coaching staff, we're the leadership of the team. And then you see the personality of how the team takes that. You see if they are policing one another, if they are holding each other accountable. If a guy doesn't run a hard 90 out, are you the first person that has to say something or is it someone else on the team that says, that's not how we do it here at Northridge? You kind of let it play itself out. Now, I don't know whether that's right or wrong, but I think if I went to four or five guys, whether they're the oldest guys or the best players, and say, I want you to be a leader, that's sometimes a little intimidating to guys because that might not be part of their personality. It's ironic because we're kind of going through individual meetings right now with our team, and we've talked with that to some of our guys about their leadership abilities, about their – work ethic about what they do, what we've seen them do each and every day and how respected they are by their teammates. Sometimes leadership doesn't always have to be by voice. Sometimes leadership can be by what you're doing, by your actions. And that's what sometimes players don't understand is that if you just do things right every day, people are going to pick up on your traits and it's not something you have to say all the time. Yeah, I want to go back to Eddie and Neil there for a second. I mean, obviously, you know, Eddie's reputation as a recruiter is very well known. And Neil's, you know, has gotten, has, has developed that right in a short amount of time as well. And so, I mean, what, what was the, what was the intrigue with both of those guys? What led you to pick up the phone and call each one of those guys to check their interest on Northridge? Well, a little bit was, uh, Eddie, I won't, I won't lie. Eddie kind of fell into my lap. Uh, Neil was a guy that as I, uh, when I was in search of another opportunity, uh, was a guy that I had on my list just because of the respect. Obviously, 
my awareness of him, of being his coach. He was on the 2004 national championship team. His personality, I'd followed his career. Obviously, he was at Santa Barbara when they had a lot of success. Um, then he went to Cal State Fullerton and was with Coach Vanderhoek. I loved his personality, his demeanor. He's a very educated young man. He's very, uh, very uh, intelligent with his words and how he teaches. And then I got a call from Eddie as I'm going through this process. And I, so I was sold on Neil just because of his makeup and what I knew about him. Then I was called by Eddie and I, I was aware of Eddie because I, I'm aware of, I'm aware of his recruiting prowess and, and his, and all that. I didn't know Eddie as well, which was okay, which was a little bit outside of my box of what I've done throughout my career. I kind of put people around me that I kind of knew whether that was right or wrong. And, um, but I reached out to Neil right away and said, Eddie just reached out to me. Uh, what can you t share with me about him? Now, I, I was aware that they were both on, on Coach Checkett's uh, coaching staff at Santa Barbara when they went, when UC Santa Barbara went to Omaha. And, um, and I, I was aware that they both were left that program. But Neil had nothing but wonderful things to say about Eddie and how well they worked well together. They knew each other inside out, and it would be a great combination. And Sure enough, it has been. I, I'm going to go back. Neil has been everything that I knew he was going to be and more. Eddie was the one I didn't know as well. But Eddie is as good as a person, as good as a family guy, and as hard as a worker as anyone I've been around. And I'm proud of both those guys. And and it's it, it's not just those two. I've got Tay Vanderford, who's my volunteer assistant, who played for me at Tennessee and then came back to Northridge as a grad. Um, uh, grad transfer and had two good years here at, at, at Northridge. Elliot Surrey, who pitched at, at um, UC Irvine, is my director of operations. I've got great people around me. And if you, if you hear me talk for 10 minutes about my staff, you know how proud I am to have people like them around me representing our program on a daily basis, communicating with the kids, mentoring the kids. And, and that's where success comes from. It's, it's putting great people around you. And any program I've been part of, whether I was the assistant or the head coach, it's been about the core of people and not just one person. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I love everything you said there. And the one note about Eddie, I mean, just a tireless recruiter, right? I mean, he just works and works and works. And it's, you know, certainly has earned my respect over the course of the years that I've known him about eight, nine years now. And I mean, he just, he leaves no stone unturned, which is something that when he told me he was coming to Northridge, I was so happy because I knew immediately that you guys were going to have success on the recruiting trail. But I want to ask you this one question because I hear a lot of head coaches say it and I hear a lot of different responses to it. But a lot of head coaches say you have to coach your coaches as well. And I wonder what your process is in that. Again, you know, I, I look back at your resume and I mean, you've seen it all, right? I mean, six trips to Omaha as a coach and, and you know, two of those as a head coach. And uh, I mean, you've, you've seen it all, right? And, and you've been around some great head coaches and, and assistant coaches your entire life. So what does that process mean to you when you when you hear, how do you coach your coaches? Well, I've never been a guy that thought that I, I know it all. Uh, I've never been that guy. I'm still learning myself each and every day. And I, I just like I relate to our players, that if you don't walk out the field every day learning something new, then you cheated yourself. Um, I think coach your coaches for me is, especially the young guys that come on board, is just making sure that they're doing things within compliance. And that's such a big part of our job now, of not making mistakes on the recruiting trail, not making mistakes, 
you know, in any area that can get the program in trouble. And I've taken a lot of pride in that. And it's more than, uh, you know, maybe it's, it's dealing with the situation. One of the things I've learned that I've shared with many of my coaches is not to overreact to situations anymore. There's always two sides of stories. So I'll get a phone call about Johnny who did this in a classroom or Johnny who did, but I, you don't really know until you hear the other side of the story. And so you got to get Johnny's perspective on it till you make some kind of decision. And I think, uh, uh, that's it. And the other thing I try to coach all my coach, I want, I'm the kind of coach. I want my coaches to reach the highest level. So I'm always promoting my coaches when they're deserving of it, because I, I don't want to be one of those coaches that just success comes from, uh, consistency. And yes, I want to keep this staff together as long as possible, but I also want my duty as the head coach, just like it is for our players to develop them, to play at the next level. I want my coaches to get the opportunities that I got like what Coach Horton has done for me and other coaches have done for me to get the opportunities. One of the things I coach probably more than anything with my coaches is to be patient. So many times these days now, those young head coaches think that that coaches that have established careers as a head coach, it was just easy. They just became a head coach. No, I go back to when I talked about in 1988, when I was mowing a field and changing sprinklers on a field, I did that for seven years. I was a grounds guy. And there's nothing wrong with being a grounds guy. But I didn't just pop into college baseball and all of a sudden I'm a head coach at UC Irvine in 2004. That took a lot of being around a lot of good people and it took being around success. And I still say to this day, the 2004 national championship team at Cal State Fullerton is what allowed me to become the head coach at UC Irvine in the summer of 2004. But I'm not one of those head coaches that that feels like they're overlooking everything i want my coaches to coach and they know that they're not going to over i'm never overlooking their shoulder neil and eddie run all the offensive stuff and that's not part of my background i know offense i've been around great offensive coaches but i don't i let them do what they do we communicate about everything i think communication is huge and i hope every coach that's ever been around me knows that that's a big part of it but I don't know if I'd say I coach my coaches. Um, if I felt I had to coach my coaches, then that probably wouldn't be someone that I'd bring on board right away because I think the players need too much coaching. And with the amount of little amount of time that we have, I don't have a lot of time to coach my coaches because I want to coach our players to be the best team we can be. One line you said there is, is learning something new and, and something that's that's relatively new. I, I mean, not, not too new, but relatively new to the college game is the use of data and technology. And is that something that you guys are implementing at Northridge? Yes, it is. We, we've got Rapsodo. I'll be the first to be honest with you that that's why I have some younger guys around me. I'm very, <laughs> I'm very old school. I'm getting educated on that. That's where, from the pitching perspective, that's where Tay Vanderford, who's my volunteer coach and works with the pitchers, um, he's much more educated on that than I am. He's educating me. So in retrospect, he's coaching me in regards <laughs> to new technology. Uh, I'm still having a tough time figuring out how to do Skype and turn on my computer and all that. <laughs> but um, no, I think it's, it's, it's vital nowadays. I don't know if you'll ever get me to say it's the, it's the absolute for success. Uh, I'm going to go back to old school. I was brought up in a program that was started by Wally Kincaid that he used to have a great line. It comes down to three factors, who throws the most strikes, who puts the ball in play the best, and who plays the best catch in the course of a nine-inning game, and that's reality. But I know in today's day and age with, with the kids nowadays that are coming up, 
they're so used to technology and all this technology is important. And I'm not saying it doesn't help develop faster. There's a lot of things that this new technology is doing that makes me look back over my career and think, boy, we were working way too hard back then. But it is something that I we we do have part. And that's another thing that our university has done is they've gotten us up to date with that kind of stuff. But it's something that I'm still trying to get educated with. And I'm lucky to have my coaches that are that are good at that. Yeah, I think there's there's value in that. And I think as as we all kind of learn this technology stuff and I think the value of that will kind of rise to the forefront and, and at least be a little more noticeable how you can kind of coach to it and teach to it and stuff. But let, let's shift gears here for the last couple of questions here for you personally and for your program. You know, obviously the loss of the spring season is is monumental, right? I mean, there's nothing yes. that's completely out of your control. But what have been some of the most challenging things for you as a head coach uh, in your first year at a program to deal with with the cancellation of the spring? Obviously, you guys were off to a really hot start. Um, you know, so losing that momentum, I'm assuming, is one of those. But, but what, have, what have been some of the most challenging things for you to deal with? If the season would, if the season would have continued, you think? Yeah, uh, well, just the cancel with the cancellation of it. Well, what, what's kind I of think been it's just, it's just a sudden ending to it. I think it. it and again, I'm not going to sit here and feel sorry for ourselves because it's it's everyone's had to deal with it, not just in college baseball, but in high school baseball and in life. I mean, in life, we've all you know we've all been quarantined, and it's a different way of life. But I think it's just the ending of it. Uh, you know, uh, we felt we were very excited about what we were starting to build. Uh, we'll go back to the, the the drawing board next year and realize where we started to see. You know, you mentioned we started seven and zero. We finished ten and five. So that means that we went three and five over our last eight, the last eight games of the year. Um, so we'll, we started to see some of the things, some of the stitches coming out a little bit. And it it's almost was. I look at it as from the positive perspective, is we got some good momentum going. We got some good mojo in the program. And we get to go back and redo it again. And we get to redo it with everybody, almost everybody back and a slew of incomers coming in that are pretty talented. So we're not in any different boat than anyone else. Unless. Everyone else feels good about their team, too, with everything coming back in the shortened draft. But I think the hardest part was was just the the ending, the, the abrupt ending. And I'll never forget that day. We had an early practice that day. We we're going to host Iowa that weekend and it was we had been on the road a ton and we were finally going to have a home series and um i remember getting the call from iowa they were going to have to cancel and not come out we were practicing at the time because we were out of school and we were practicing in the morning they weren't going to get to come we had a meeting right after and we i alerted the team we weren't going to play this weekend series we weren't sure everything that was going on things were coming out then the final then the the March Madness was canceled, and I told them to be prepared. That's not a good sign for what the future is. Then a day or so later, our championship series gets canceled for Omaha. And it was kind of a – the ending was sad because I'll never forget talking to the team in the dugout, preparing them for what could happen, and it did happen, and we never saw them again except for Zoom calls to this day. And I've never ended a season. We I've had some great ending to seasons. I've had some rough ending to seasons. But never did our season ever end like that, where you never saw your players ever again. 
You talked about earlier about some of the guys coming back, your your pitcher coming back there, the fifth year player. How how do you think that's going to what impact will that have on the college game, right? Because and you mentioned the the shortened draft five rounds. You know, everybody that I talk to, the consensus seems to be that the college baseball is going to really be elevated, right? The level of play is going to be elevated with guys that wouldn't normally be back. And then you add guys that maybe wouldn't have arrived to campus under normal circumstances. But what's your take on on the impact on the college game, you know, maybe at all levels? Because I got to imagine junior colleges in California are going to just blossom next year, you know, and then even down to the D2 and D3 levels, they're going to get guys that maybe they would have otherwise missed. Yeah, it- I, I truly echo what you say. I think college baseball, college baseball is that I feel over the last few years because of the notoriety it's got by television and how many games are on TV now, how popular it's become is is at the highest stage it's been in years uh, from a popularity standpoint. But I've been in this for a long time and I have seen and part of this is because of professional baseball and how they get the pick of the litter and how much more guys sign than sometimes go to school. This is going to change college baseball in regards to the talent level now. I think it's going to go up a level, at least a level, and you hit it perfectly. I think the biggest winner out of this is going to be junior college baseball. I I believe you're going to see, like it was back in the 80s and the 90s, you're going to see junior colleges now that are loaded with 5 to 10 really good Division I players coming out of there each and every year. Um, I'd be surprised if that doesn't happen. But I think all levels are going to win out of this because – so many kids now are going to go to college and, and develop in college while getting their degrees or working towards their degrees. And I really truly believe that's why Major League Baseball is going this route of the shorter draft is because they see the impact that college baseball has had in all levels of how the impact they've had of, on the percentages of kids coming out of college, being mature and more ready and getting to the big leagues faster than that that bonus kid, bonus baby coming out of high school that has no idea what minor league baseball is when he's 18 years old, living on his own in a town that he doesn't know how far from home. So I think we all win out of this at every level. And I think it's a great, it's tough on the kids. I mean, it's tough on those good, on those good players. Cause a lot of players now are going to have to, that wanted to play professional baseball are going to have to take a different route. But I hope when it's all said and done, they realize it was the best route for their career. Do you think this will impact the game a year, two years, three years, maybe more? I think it's going to impact our game for a few years now. I, I really do. Uh, again, I go back to our Zoom individual meetings we're having with our team right now, and I just made a comment to a few of the freshmen that had made some impacts on our program last year that what a huge bonus for them. They get a feel of Division One baseball, and yet they get to start all over again, and it didn't even count. And so I think you're going to – now – with this layoff and the possibility of not having summer leagues, I don't know if that's going to help uh, develop players because there's not a whole lot that guys are doing to get better right now. But when I look at the other side of the coin, you know, there's been so many years with travel ball and how the impact of the arms that so much baseball has had on kids. Maybe this rest may be something that everybody needed in regards to the physical standpoint of baseball and my hope is, is that we take a little bit of time as we ease back into it where we're not trying to rush back into it. Because I feel if we rush back into it because of the time off, 
you might see more arm injuries because guys haven't had the, the chance to move their arm as much and condition their arm for, for the heavy load that they have ahead of them. Yeah, and a great opportunity to get stronger and faster and all those ancillary traits that are required, right? I mean, I think it's great. You mentioned Zoom a couple times, Coach, and I'm curious, how is how is recruiting for you during this time? I mean, I got to imagine it's a lot of phone calls. It's a lot of, uh, you know, Zoom meetings potentially. But how, what's recruiting during a pandemic like for a head coach at a Division One program? You know, it's, I've been asked <laughs> that question a few times. It's, it's very different. I mean, obviously, you know, None of us have been on the road, and none of us are going to be on the road, at least until the end of June. Um, so it, it's, you know, I feel fortunate. Again, I'm going to give props to, to my staff and Eddie that Eddie's done a good job of compiling a list of names, and that's what all good recruiting coordinators have done. So when you have something hit like this that none of us knew was, was coming, um, you're not scrambling. You're not just pulling a name off a chart. You're, you actually have some background with this individual. And now you're just going back to see if there's an interest. I think what I see happening a little bit, and I'm not sure about this, but I think there's a little bit more panic mode in some kids now to find a home, especially that senior in high school or that sophomore in junior college that maybe wasn't recruited because no one's going to get a chance to see you now. And so when someone shows interest, you're going to jump at that interest because you want an opportunity to play at the next level. And my advice to those kids is is don't just jump at the first thing because as we shared earlier if division 1 isn't is is your goal right now besides professional baseball there's some great opportunities at junior college that I'll never frown upon that's how my life started in college baseball and it's what allowed me to develop into the into the player that I became to get the the wonderful opportunity to go play at Cal State Fullerton under Augie Garita and um, so um it, it has to answer your question, though, it has made things really difficult. And I think it's made it easier on us because Eddie had an ongoing list of players that we had interest in. We just never got a chance to go back and see him that second or third time because we were shut down. I mean, you you, you mentioned there your life started at at Cerritos College, right? I mean, you had a, a, just a ton of success there, particularly in 85. And why do you think it, it it's kind of shifted to where the junior college ranks kind of I won't say it's a negative, you know, look, but I mean, it kind of is, right? It has this negative perception like, oh, you're not a D1 player. I mean, I know for me, I went to a junior college out of high school. I just wasn't mature enough, right, to go to a, a big four-year school. I mean, I wasn't mentally mature enough. Um, you know, my wife might argue I'm still not, but <laughs> you know, I, I, I think, you know, I think there's a lot of benefits that can come from that. But why, why do you think, uh, you know, that it has that kind of perception it has nowadays? You know, I think it starts with the academic side, to be honest with you. And I try to I try to talk down every family that that frowns upon that from the academic standpoint, that the reality is your first two years when you're when the, the freshman and sophomore are taking their general education classes. It's the same thing at the junior college level than it is the division one level. And I agree with you. I think maturity sometimes and sometimes reality is hard to set in with people that they don't want to look at themselves and say, you know what, maybe I need to go develop for a couple of years and then open more doors to places that may be better than even the place that was recruiting me out of high school. And, you know, I don't care what anyone says. A lot of times when there's an absolute immediate need in a division one program, the first place we're going to go look is a junior college because that person is more developed. 
more mature and more ready to step right in and be a player in his first year. Not saying we don't want every freshman to come in. We want every freshman to come in and play right away. But the reality is there's a learning curve that goes on. The game is faster at Division One level than it is in high school. And so sometimes it takes a guy a year or two to find his niche and be able to make that lineup. And more, more so than the kid that's coming from the junior college that's played at a higher level and is more prepared and ready to step right in. Coach, as somebody that's spent 25 years or so in Division One baseball, you've seen a lot of changes. Do you think that there are any changes that you would like to see in the game today? Uh, you know, I go back to the third paid assistant. You know, obviously the, the scholarship limitations are a challenge for a lot of programs. But, you know, maybe is are those two some of the changes you'd like to see? Or is there something else that you think could change that could elevate the game of, of college baseball? I think the biggest thing, you hit on a couple already, what you said. I think the biggest thing for me that has become frustrating for a lot of us coaches is the lack of time we get to spend with our players um, each and every day. There's so many different rules through compliance that we have to abide by, and we abide by all of them, of just the interaction and the development of your players. And, you know, sarcastically, my comeback on that is that's like shutting down the library on the university campus so students can't study certain parts of the day and you know how do you get better is by doing it and I think you know there's so little time our 20 hours a week that we get in practice season and the eight hours we get in the off season is just not enough and I I tell our players all the time if you believe you're going to develop into the player that you want to be and the player that wants the opportunity to play professional baseball You've got to put a lot more time in than the, the time allotted that we're giving you. And I go back to when I started when I was at Cal State Fullerton as the assistant at the University of Tennessee. We didn't have limitations as for the amount of time that, that we could be and develop our develop not just our teams, but our people. And and I think there's no better place if, if you're in college athletics, there's no better place to be than the culture of your team and, and working hard as a team and getting better. There's a lot worse places you can be than on a field um, doing something in an activity. And that would be the one thing that I'd change is, and obviously rules are made for reasons less. It's because people are abusing the rules and, and over overworking their players. But I just wish we'd be given a little bit more leniency for the amount of time that we could help develop our, our student athletes. Wow, that's fantastic. I, I tend to agree that 20, 20 hours a week, I mean, that's, it seems like almost nothing in the, in, in the grand scheme of things. But it's, coach, basically, it's basically a part-time job. That's what right. it is, a part-time job. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Coach, before I let you go, we got a little tradition here with coaches where we do a little rapid fire. We ask, uh, I ask you about 10 questions. Just fire off the first thing that comes to your mind. Uh, it's you know kind of a fun way to kind of wrap up a fantastic conversation for us today. So uh, if you're ready, I'm ready with uh, about, oh, eight to 10 questions for you. Go ahead. All right. Small ball or gorilla ball? Baseball. Country or classic rock? Classic rock. Costco or Sam's Club? Costco. College football or the NFL? College football. Favorite vacation spot? Maui. Mac or PC? Mac. Best singer on your team? Denzel Clark. Best dancer on your team? Denzel Clark. Favorite stadium you've ever been in? Uh, Arkansas. Most memorable team you've coached? 2007 UC Irvine Anteaters. 
go-to song to sing in the shower? I'm not a singer. Uh, take me out to the ball game. <laughs> Favorite sports team? Oh, that's a tough one. I'm going to say the Los Angeles Dodgers. Uh, in and out or five guys? Who? Uh, in and out. Uh, nice, Coach. I can't thank you enough for spending some time with me just talking about it. You're fabulous career and everything Cal State Northridge baseball it's really truly been an honor for me to have you on well Les I want to thank you too Um, the tireless work that you do each and every day to help promote student athletes in high school with your organization and and your promotion of them and and, uh, you work extremely hard and and it's appreciated by many coaches around around the, the state and around the country thank you thank you very much coach I hope to see you very soon okay take care I'd like to thank Cal State Northridge head coach Dave Serrano for joining me on the podcast today. Be sure to check out prepbaseballreport.com for all your news and information. And until next time, we'll see you at the yard.